Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. After shots were fired at Lexington and Concord, both British and American forces scrambled for control of the developing narrative. While the King's Empire flooded the city of Boston with troops and supplies, the American rebels surrounded the now-occupied city. In preparation for the war to come, the American Continental Congress selected George Washington to be the new commander of the Continental Army, and Patriots engaged their own Imperial forces at Bunker Hill. In this episode, we discuss the year 1775, Bunker Hill, George Washington, and the invasion of Canada. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. We're moving into the second half of Season 3 of Wartime, and we're moving into an entirely new format for discussing the very complicated and very detailed history of the War of the American Revolution. Now, so far, we spent a lot of time dealing with the lead-up to revolution, that is, the political and social changes that actually caused the war. And in many ways, as a historian, it's my job to make sure you understand that very clearly. Some people put a lot of emphasis on battles, how troops move, where and why, and again, that's all very important. But one of the things we absolutely have to understand, that we often don't enough, is what causes these battles, what social undertones exist and how the situation really came into being. As we move forward in Season 3 of Wartime, we're going to be changing our tune a bit, not necessarily focusing on themes as much as years. We're now moving into the whole eight-year existence of the American Revolution, 1775 to 1783. And now that we've, I think, very successfully discussed the underpinnings of the war itself, we can now move into the specific troop movements and campaigns uh, that really fuel the conflict. We're going to do this on a yearly basis, beginning with today's episode, the year 1775. It may seem chaotic, it may seem confusing, but I promise you, we'll get through it in the most clear and concise way possible. Sometimes that means, in the interest of full disclosure, that I may have to shorten some events, or I may have to skimp on some of the details I consider to be less pertinent to maintaining the big picture. But I promise you, by the time you're finished with Season 3 of Wartime, you will be an expert 
on the American Revolution. That is, if you remember everything we talk about. Hopefully I open new avenues for you to study, maybe new interesting research topics for you to delve into. Good history, as I always say, asks more questions than it answers. But without further ado, let's move in to the narrative. In the year 1775, the American Revolution remains in its infancy. And we use that term a lot, and it might be cliched, but I think it's an important term. Because when you're in your infancy, you're really still developing in many ways. Not the person you'll be, but physiologically, the body you'll have. The physiological systems of your body are developing in your infancy. And that's what's going on here in the American Revolution. When we think of the revolution, we often think of an organized uh, system of battle, right? The American army versus this much larger British army. But the fact of the matter is, throughout most of this war, the American army does not exist in the way we often think. And what we see is, so far, it's a very disorganized mishmash of peoples, often fighting for very different reasons. To this point in the series, we've seen a lot of the ideological fuel that's really been burning the fire of revolution so far. And, quite honestly, revolution really hasn't happened yet. In our last episode, we saw the breakdown of societal norms and the beginning of this great separatist movement that is the American Revolutionary Cause at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Now, when we say battles of Lexington and Concord, we often like to think of this as the beginning. But we know from our previous discussion that this really isn't the beginning of anything. This was merely the continuation of a debate that's turned very ugly very quickly. But where I'd like to begin tonight's discussion, 1775, really is the place where the war turns hot, where you begin to see armies uh, and captains and commanders and troop movements all around. And this is going to develop in the year 1775 in three very distinct ways. The first will be the immediate aftermath of the battles of Lexington and Concord. The second will be uh, the ancillary movements as a result. And the third will be largely unexpectedly uh, and certainly uh, overlooked in the grand history of the revolution, an invasion of a foreign country by today's standards, the invasion of Canada. So let's begin. In the immediate aftermath of Lexington and Concord, both sides, I think, American and British, were really feeling the effects uh, of a point where they never really believed they'd actually get to. Ever since the end of the Seven Years' War, as we know, there'd been a very intense and very troublesome debate in the American colonies. And there'd been a lot of big talking, and a lot of promises made, and a lot of tough accusation by both sides. But really, very few people ever believed the, the drama would actually come to blows in the way that it did. Well, now the gloves were off on both sides. For the Americans, the great fear is that maybe with Lexington and Concord, they may have bitten off more than they can chew. Yes, there were a lot of promises made. Yes, there were a lot of threats made. But now it's on. Are you ready for the conflict? Well, you don't even have an army. So the answer is no. For the British, this is damage control. We have this sense today that the British want to uh, crush the Americans in this war. And the fact of the matter is, almost half of their wealth came from the American colonies. The British Empire did not want to annihilate the Americans. They simply wanted them to put them back in their place, at least the way that they saw it. So again, a theme of this uh, of this series 
is that we see two sides viewing the same event from two completely different perspectives. Now, remember, when we look at the year 1775, you're still looking at what I like to call British North America. And this is a North America that's still in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. It's a North America that the British Empire has invested the equivalent today of billions of dollars into over the better part of the last 150 years. And they plan on keeping it. And a lot of institutions still exist that were there otherwise. Now, the situation in Boston after Lexington and Concord basically looks like this. Again, it requires a little bit of geography. And if you visit my Twitter account, at Brady Kreitzer, or you can just search for the account, Wartime Podcast, I'll be tweeting out some maps as the weeks go by that are going to make this much, much easier to understand. But the situation in Boston is still pretty bad. Boston itself is a small peninsula surrounded on three sides by water. On that peninsula are 6,000 British regular soldiers under the command of General Thomas Gage. That's the way it's been since 1768. Now what's changed, and I mean changed in the last few weeks for us, really is the aftermath of the first battle at Lexington and Concord. After the British retreat back to Boston itself, about 15,000 angry Massachusetts militiamen surround the city. They surround it on land-borne peninsulas to the north, the Charlestown Peninsula, to the west, which is Massachusetts proper, and even to the south. Now, what connects the uh, peninsula of Boston uh, to the rest of Massachusetts is a very small strip of land called the Roxbury Neck. And the Americans, for all of their, uh, I guess, enthusiasm, have actually managed to control that neck of land, which effectively isolates the British on the peninsula of Boston proper uh, and really surrounds them on three sides. That should make an American militiaman feel very good. And again, I'll tweet out a map that will help you understand this better. But the British will maintain something over the Americans that they can never account for. And this will be the strength of the British Empire for much of the next 200 years. And it's their mighty British Navy. The British, for as tiny as their island is in the northern part of Europe, as small, as, as tiny as the land mass is itself, has one of the great advantages that will help it dominate the planet throughout history, and that is their navy. When you hear British Empire and you think militaria, I want you to always think navy, because they are the masters and commanders and lords of the sea. Well, the Americans have nothing that can compete with the mighty British navy. And even though they've surrounded the uh, British in Boston on three different sides, they still do not have that naval effectiveness or naval superiority to really make them feel uh, very comfortable and really make them feel like a siege of the peninsula is a realistic possibility. They do as much as they can on the landboard side, considering that A, they aren't really an army, and B, they are horribly undersupplied. I mean, most of the weapons they have are the weapons they had at home. This is not a modern army in the 18th century sense. But it's becoming one. And from Philadelphia, from the Continental Congress, it's the closest thing to an army they have. So like it or not, they have to develop it, and they have to protect it, and they have to make sure that it really uh, is substantial enough to justify rebellion like they're talking about. Now, this is the stalemate we have, and we have it for some time. We have it for enough time that the British General Thomas Gage can actually write to England for support. 
He needs help in Boston, and there's enough time for the support to answer. But all around the city, uh, you have these, again, ambitious, anxious patriots surrounding the, uh, the location. They really begin to act like uh, a magnet in many ways. For people who politically are on the same page as they are, people who all over the, the Northeast, really the New England colonies, have been talking a pretty big game about what they would do uh, if the British ever really did instill open combat on the American colonists. Now, this is, again, something that removing ourselves from the narrative, not making this uh, the American revolution against the British, but simply a rebellion against an empire anywhere in the world, this is something we see all the time, and unfortunately, we still see it today. Anytime you have a place where open combat, a hot war breaks out, the crazies come rolling in like bathwater going down a drain. If there's a war in the Middle East, uh, the most recent example is this ISIS phenomenon that's going on in the Middle East. Uh, the war in Iraq in the Middle East, the war in Afghanistan against the Soviets in the 1980s, you name it. Uh, people from all over the world who agree with them on an ideological basis are going to begin to pour into that country. Now, this is only happening on a local level. Uh, in the American re Revolution at this point, but it will happen on a global level as we move forward, so we'll talk more about that. But men from all across the colonies show up at Boston. Again, they've been looking for a fight. Well, like it or not, they've got it. And one of those men is a Connecticut man named Benedict Arnold. Now, Benedict Arnold comes to Boston with a plan. He wants to be, for lack of a better term, a big shot. He wants to be a commander. He wants to be a leader of men. He wants his name to go down in history uh, in this association with the American Revolution. Now, if you know anything about Benedict Arnold, you probably have a negative view of him. Maybe you don't know why, uh, and you will as we move forward. But by 1775, he was a dedicated and diehard patriot uh, looking forward to fighting the American cause in any way possible. Now, Benedict Arnold has a plan. And his basic plan is this. He believes, because of his New England upbringing in Connecticut, that he has a good sense of the basic layout of British North America from a militaristic perspective. And he does. And he believes there is one very ripe cherry uh, only a short distance away north in New York State, on the border between Canada and New York, effectively, uh, that if the rebels could capture that position, they would give themselves uh, a terrific chance at actually being successful in this war. And what he's talking about is the long-time first French and then British holdout stronghold of Fort Ticonderoga. Now, we'll stop the discussion of Boston for a bit, and we'll jump to Fort Ticonderoga, because it's a very important piece of this larger imperial puzzle. It was built by the French and called Fort Carillon, uh, a few decades earlier, and in the Seven Years' War, the capture of Fort Carillon uh, and the subsequent renaming of it as Fort Ticonderoga by the British had made it one of the most important sites in North America. It was known as the Gibraltar of North America, and it's still to this day in really good shape. If you're ever in New York, in Ticonderoga, in the Adirondack Mountains, and this is the very northern tip of New York State, I encourage you to visit it because it's an overwhelming place that really gives you a great sense of how uh, waterways acted as superhighways in the colonial world. But the war with the French was over, and the war with the French had been over for over a decade, and Fort Ticonderoga really fell into disrepair by 1775. It's situated directly on Lake Champlain, 
which connects directly uh, through the Richelieu River with the St. Lawrence River. And what it basically is, is sort of this dominating feature of land that will ostensibly control the connective space between British Canada uh, and the American colonies. If you were on the St. Lawrence River, the real heart of British Canada, and you wanted to enter the American colonies, well, you simply do it going south along the Richelieu, then into Lake Champlain, into Lake George. There's a short portage, and before you know it, you're on the Hudson River. That takes you directly to New York City, to Manhattan Island, and that gives you a, a, a direct line. Again, I use this term a lot, but a superhighway into the American colonies. Benedict Arnold knows in 1775, if you capture Fort Ticonderoga, uh, two things will happen. One, you sever that vital British entry point, should the rebellion continue to a point where they need to use it. And two, and I think most pressingly, you capture all of the wonderful cannons and artillery pieces that are just sort of collecting dust at Fort Ticonderoga and have been for the last decade. People in Boston, that is, the rebels surrounding the British, desperately need artillery pieces just like that. And in Arnold's mind, it's a no-brainer to go there and capture them. He believes that there will be a minimal skeleton crew there to protect the fort. And he also believes that they will absolutely, positively never expect an attack to come. So for Benedict Arnold, and a capture of Fort Ticonderoga really is, in many ways, a key to the continent. Uh, and the key to keeping the American Revolution alive this early in 1775. Benedict Arnold will go to the uh, the colonial militia, we can say, of Massachusetts, and he'll make his case. And he actually is given a commission to take a group of men up into the uh, Adirondack Mountains and capture this fort. But the problem is, he's not alone. And of course, he doesn't know that until it's too late. When you look at a map of the United States today, especially the colonial Northeast, you're going to see a few things that stand out. One of them is that the colony of Vermont doesn't exist. It's not there. New Hampshire's there. Massachusetts is there. Connecticut's there. Uh, but Vermont doesn't. And there's a reason. The land, of course, is there. But there's actually a dispute between colonies. It's been going on for some time in 1775. Uh, who controls the land that will become Vermont? They are known politically and generally as the New Hampshire Grants, but they're not called Vermont. That's the land we're dealing with. New York wants to control that land. So does New Hampshire. And the people who live in the New Hampshire Grants themselves will take sides as a result. They'll begin to fight each other. It gets very ugly. In a lot of ways, when the American Revolution comes, it kind of brings a lot of the dispute to a close, because now they have a much greater enemy to deal with. Well, one of these people who achieves almost legendary status uh, fighting settlers in the New Hampshire Grants is a man that, by name, you probably all know. His name is Ethan Allen. Ethan Allen is a local man who is a roughneck. He has a reputation for being one of the toughest men in the New Hampshire Grants. So much so that he has a group of people with him that are sort of his own private army. Uh, he's kind of a warlord, you can say, in that way. Uh, they call themselves the Green Mountain Boys. Now, Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys have, to this point, had nothing much to say about the British uh, and the American Revolution. They, they are busy sort of staking their claim, battling for pieces of land against their fellow colonists. But when war breaks out, as far as we've seen it, when Lexington and Concord happens, of course, news travels fast. And he understands the strategic importance of uh, Fort Ticonderoga. 
Now, if you're at Fort Ticonderoga and you look across Lake Champlain, you're in New York at the time, the other side of that lake is Vermont today. Uh, it's the home of these Green Mountain Boys, the New Hampshire Grants. So Ethan Allen will take it upon himself to say, well, I'll capture Fort Ticonderoga in the name of my respective colony, uh, and I'll use my Green Mountain Boys to do it. Well, you can imagine where this is going pretty quickly. Uh, Benedict Arnold shows up full of pomp and circumstance under the impression that he is the conquering hero of Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, as he gets there, however, he sees this collection of ragtag rebels under the command of a man with no commission other than his reputation, named Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. Well, of course, Benedict Arnold will say, uh, in May of 1775, uh, you can march with us. I'm your new commanding officer. Ethan Allen will say, I have no commanding officer. Uh, we're doing this on our own. Now, the long and short of it is this. While Fort Ticonderoga is sitting there, just like a ripe cherry, ready to be picked, it seems like the whole operation may come crashing down uh, because of the clash of egos between Benedict Arnold, who's officially sanctioned by the colony of Massachusetts, and Ethan Allen, who's basically operating on his own because no one will stop him. Well, fortunately for them, and we don't exactly know how this goes down, they agree to some kind of joint command. Of course, Benedict Arnold, in his seemingly endless uh, chasm of hubris and ego, declares that in the official record, he was the overall commander in charge. Ethan Allen and his men would say they absolutely were not marching under Benedict Arnold. They were simply marching alongside him. But whatever the histrionics of it, whatever the, the bickering and name-calling is, uh, what we do see as a result, Fort Ticonderoga is actually taken away from the British by Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys and Benedict Arnold and his militiamen. It's largely a bloodless battle. Again, the men in Ticonderoga really had no idea anyone was going to attack them. I mean, they've been sitting in the Adirondack Mountains for years, never seeing any sort of action at all whatsoever. It's almost like uh, the old Knight Templar uh, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, just waiting and waiting for something, and then eventually you just stop expecting it. Well... That's, of course, a little humor. Uh, but these British soldiers had been lulled into boredom over many, many seasons of isolation. Again, with no French threat, what is the, what's the problem? There really isn't one. So whenever Ethan Allen and his men and Benedict Arnold and his men capture the fort, uh, it's really just a matter of declaration at that point. In one of the great moments in all of American history, just in terms of having great quotes, uh, we actually see the capture of the fort. Ethan Allen will go inside the fort. It's still intact. It's been rebuilt, and it's been restored. Uh, he'll knock on the door uh, of the British captain in charge, and he will ask for the surrender of the fort, quote, in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress. That's what he'll yell out. And, of course, he's doing this, whether he really said that or not, I guess we'll never know, uh, but to build this sort of legendary status in the American Revolutionary Movement. Whatever the case... Fort Ticonderoga fell as, as, as strong as the fortification was. Uh, it had really fallen into a state of, of disrepair in many ways because the French threat had been gone for the better part of two decades. But the Americans are to be taken seriously with the fall of Fort Ticonderoga. I think if we can seek out any meaning for it, uh, they've captured a major British fort. And if you are the British Empire, 
This is not something that's going to sit very well with you. You know that that Lake Champlain, Lake George corridor is your key connection into the American colonies. And you know that as, as little value as Fort Ticonderoga had for much of the last two decades, you, you do need to protect it now. And of course, the American rebels now possess it and its plethora of weapons, artillery, ammunition, gunpowder, and cannons that sit on board. So, this is going to be one of the real big jumps uh, of the podcast. Again, when we're doing it by a yearly basis, one thing you have to understand is that the American Revolution is a global conflict. Even though we don't often think of it, we're going to leave Fort Ticonderoga and we're going to jump back to Boston. And there might not be an artistic or articulate way to do this, so I guess suspend your disbelief. You've come this far to download the podcast um, we're moving back to Boston. So again, you know, reset in your mind. But again, around Boston, you have, you have these 15,000 people largely undersupplied, certainly underfunded, but anxious to fight. But you also have 6,000 British soldiers on the peninsula of Boston itself that are really anxious as well. It's a bad scene. Now, immediately after, uh, the situation at Lexington and Concord, Thomas Gage, the commander of all British forces in North America, wrote back to Britain for some help. He needed support, and especially after being surrounded, uh, times were going to be pretty desperate. Now, for Thomas Gage, remember, even though he's surrounded on three sides and completely on the only landborne connection back to Massachusetts itself, the Roxbury Neck, he still had the mighty British Navy at his disposal. And that meant he could receive communications, supplies, and men from England, literally with nothing impeding their process. Well, on May 25th of 1775, a warship will arrive in Boston called the HMS Cerberus. I want you to remember that. Besides the fact that it's a very cool sounding name, of course, from Greek mythology. Uh, but the HMS Cerberus will bring with it three new commanding officers that will aid Gage as his underlings in the war. And how fitting, they are probably in the future, I would argue, the, the most important three people uh, of the entire British cause in the entire war. They are Sir Henry Clinton, John Burgoyne, and William Howe. Each one of these men are like the power players of the British military in North America uh, in the American Revolution. William Howe, Henry Clinton, John Burgoyne. Each of them immense characters that we'll talk about later. Uh, but they are, in some cases, you could say the three-headed monster of the British Empire. That's why the HMS Cerberus, of course the three-headed beast from Greek mythology, is such a fitting ship for them to arrive. But when they get to Boston, they all generally agree Something has to be done. They've got to break out of the peninsula. Uh, and they begin to make plans to do so. Now, there's a few different plans going around. Again, Gage is in overall command. But these are three huge personalities. Burgoyne, Clinton, and Howe. And they really don't agree on much. And as you'll see, the competition between Howe and Clinton will tear the British army apart at a very vital time in only a few months. But the general belief... Uh, is that the British can charge the Roxbury Neck. That is, that small piece of land that connects Massachusetts to the Boston Peninsula itself and be successful. But a lot of squabbling between these men slows things down greatly. Word gets out of Boston via an American spy uh, that it, such a venture is going to happen. 
and the Americans begin to take the opportunity to uh, address the issue on their own. Now, again, I'm going to tweet out a map of this this week, so if you can follow at Brady Kreitzer, or even search for Wartime Podcast on Twitter, you'll find this and more that will help you visualize all of the events we're discussing tonight. You're going to see uh, that just north of Boston, again, north of that Boston Peninsula, across the, a small mass of water, uh, is a peninsula called the Charlestown Peninsula. At the very southern tip is Charlestown itself, but as you go further back, uh, there are two fairly impressive, but not overstatedly large hills. Uh, the first, just above Charlestown, just north of it, is known as Breed's Hill. And the second, just north of that and a little bit west, is called Bunker Hill. And this peninsula, in the minds of the American militiamen at the time, is their best chance to meet and defeat the British army uh, of any they have. They begin to fortify Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill, which gives them a direct uh, overlook of the peninsula of Boston itself. Now, when this development begins in, uh, in Boston proper, Gage, Howe, Burgoyne, and Clinton begin to really look at this scene developing, and they understand that whatever move they were going to make on the Roxbury Neck uh, is going to be ineffective, because the American militiamen are focusing almost all of their efforts on Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill on the Charlestown Peninsula. In the minds of the men strategizing this development for the British, they believe that, yes, most of the American forces are there, but let's face it, this is still a rabble of unorganized militia. The British Army should be able to capture that peninsula, even though it's not exactly uh, the route of least resistance. Uh, they believe it should be able to be captured fairly easily. And that's the route they take. They went across the water, onto the Charlestown Peninsula, and take Breed's Hill, where the Americans have posted themselves here in June of 1775. Now, the man who leads the Americans uh, in this overall uh, development and fortification of Breed's Hill is a man named William Prescott. He takes on the, uh, the very unenviable position of fortifying the position, building earthworks, doing his best to give his men some kind of chance to be successful. And one of the great small ironies of the American Revolution uh, is that his brother-in-law, Prescott's brother-in-law, is actually in Boston uh, as a loyalist fighting alongside the British. Now think of that. When we think of these weird synchronicities uh, in wars like this, we often think of the American Civil War, brother versus brother, comrade versus comrade. But in many ways, the American Revolution, because it was a political war early on, and we know how fickle politics can be, even despite family blood, uh, in the American Revolution, we see these synchronicities all the time as well. The brother-in-law of Prescott was a man named Abijah Willard. And Abijah Willard knew his brother-in-law very well. Thomas Gage actually asked him, uh, regarding his brother-in-law, the American commander, will he fight? I mean, Gage was really using the intelligence he had on hand. He asked him, will he fight? I think this is one of the great quotes uh, of many from the entire war. And what Abijah Willard will say regarding his, his, his brother-in-law, the American uh, commander, he says, quote, As to his men, I cannot answer for them but Colonel Prescott will fight you to the gates of hell. That's what he says to the commander of all British forces in North America. Amazing. Well, what we're beginning to see in June of 1775 is the real, I think, first true battle 
of the American Revolution. Not to discredit Lexington and not to take away from Concord, but I'm dealing with a real battle with both sides uh, completely prepared for what they're getting themselves into. How can we call it the Battle of Bunker Hill? And here's the basics of it. The Americans are on the Charlestown Peninsula north of Boston. The British have to cross a small stretch of water and land on that peninsula. And they do so with almost no resistance. Uh, the British Navy allows them to do this. Once the British land on the peninsula, they have to charge up the hill and try and capture the American position on Breed's Hill. Even though this is called the Battle of Bunker Hill, most of the fighting happens on the hill before it, uh, called Breed's Hill. But this is the basic stalemate you have. Uh, the British believe that even though you never want to charge up a hill to attack an enemy, they have a distinct advantage just in training, technology, and supply. So they send a wave of men up that hill to attack the Americans. The Americans actually repulse them, which, even though the British think very little of them, was actually very predictable. It's a common axiom in any military strategy that the attacking army will always lose more men. If you have the high ground, even if you have less weapons, you can fend them off more easily. So the first wave of British troops goes up. The Americans, who really don't know what to expect in any way, shape, or form, they're surrounded on the peninsula in the sea by the British Navy, actually fend off this British attack. The British will attack a second time and be repulsed yet again. And here's where we see one of the great ironies of the war, which is so so interesting in a war like this, uh, because of just what was at stake and just how precarious it really could be the entire time. The Americans were virtually out of ammunition by this point, after the second wave up Breed's Hill of the British. They really didn't believe, if the British attacked a third time, that they could survive, that they have any chance of fending them off. They believed they were going down the entire way. The British, on the other side, uh, were actually taking a, a pretty good beating as well. And they didn't know how much more they could sustain another charge after it. So here's basically what happens. You have the, the Americans fending off the British on Breed's Hill twice. Uh, sensing that they maybe have, have gotten the most of the exchange so far, they actually turn around and retreat off the high ground further into Bunker Hill and then into Massachusetts. Now, they flee the field of battle. The British take the hill. By all standards of military uh, strategy and convention, they win the day. This is a British victory. The British uh, had an enemy on the hill, and they forced them off of it. So the British are cheering. We've won the battle. The Americans, though, who have, who have subsequently fled, are in their camps cheering as well, saying, well, I think we won the battle. We fended them off twice. And here's the issue of it. Bunker Hill is one of the great opportunities to really reveal to you something I've been saying all along this season. That the American Revolution, like all wars, is a strictly political war. So what do we mean by this? Well, the British capture the hill. They're celebrating. The Americans retreating. They're celebrating. How can there be two winners in a battle? Well, when you look at the casualty figures, one of the things you'll see that the British, the attacking army, actually suffer over a thousand casualties in this battle. It's the highest casualty rate, mind you, of the entire war for the British Empire. The official number is 1,054. Uh, on the other side, the Americans lose only 450 men casualties. Uh, so what you have here is that 
you have two different versions of what victory looks like. Both are right, and both are wrong. The British believe at the Battle of Bunker Hill, they captured the hill, they're victorious. The Americans believe, because we killed uh, almost, well, more than twice as many of them as they killed of us, that we're the winners. Even though we gave up the hill, this was never a battle about a hill. It was a battle about uh, vanquishing your enemy. Who's right, who's wrong? Well, they both are. And this is the political nature of the war. Both sides really need a victory here. And both sides claim that they'll have it. Now, the Americans at Boston are not an army. But they have the makings of an army. And in their mind, at least in the minds of some, they've just defeated the big, bad, all-powerful British. But they don't have a commander. Now, when we go to Philadelphia, one of the things we'll see with the Continental Congress is, I feel, they really don't know how to deal with the events of June of 1775. They've seen the Americans uh, face off officially on the field of battle now three times with the British, the biggest being the Battle of Bunker Hill. And whether they were prepared for it or not, they won. There was a victory there. So what do you do? Well, if the uh, militiamen, the irregulars, the insurgents, the rebels, whatever you want to use, surrounding Boston are an army. They're going to need a leader, and they're going to need a leader fast. The American Continental Congress will take it upon themselves to appoint that leader. And the man they pick uh, is, uh, well, the tallest man in the room. He's the man wearing a military uniform to a convention of politicians. He's one of the only men who actually served in the military before. And, of course, his service was in the Great Seven Years' War on behalf of the British Empire. And it wasn't especially outstanding service either. The man they pick is the Virginian George Washington. Washington, of course, not to belabor this point, uh, will be a member of the Continental Congress. He's been one of the leading voices of separation in the Continental Congress from the Virginia delegation. And he's a man that actively lobbied fairly hard for this job. Again, the day they were taking the vote, he wore a military uniform. He's six foot four. You're not going to miss the gesture. This is an age of gesture politics. Now, well, now of course, with the new commission, he'll leave Philadelphia, he'll move to Boston, and he'll take up position as the commander-in-chief of what they're calling now the American Continental Army. They have about 15,000 men, the number shrinking by the day. They have even fewer supplies, shrinking at an even faster rate. And now they have a commander. They need a name, the American Continental Army. It's not exactly an enviable position. And when you also consider that, by and large, most people thought this would fail, this whole revolutionary experiment, George Washington would really be one of the first guys hung for this event. I mean, it's that serious. We can't, you know, even though we can make light of the politics of it, we can't stress enough how traitors and those convicted of treason are punished in today's world as well as the 18th century world. But business is afoot. Now in 1775, that's the situation we'll see leading into 1776, but it's not the only situation, interestingly enough. Remember Benedict Arnold. Uh, the man who wanted so desperately to be the hero of Fort Ticonderoga, and I'm sure, much to his chagrin, had to share the glory with Ethan Allen earlier that year. Well, he still has big dreams. He still has big goals. And his goals have to do with capturing yet another pre-existing British installation, 
uh, even more important, he believes, than Ticonderoga, and he's right. What he proposes next to the Continental Congress, because he didn't get his just desserts at Ticonderoga the way he wanted, again, he's trying to make history. He's actively trying to put his name on the map. It's an invasion of Canada. That's right. He wants to invade Canada, a British holding, as a result of the Seven Years' War. And he wants to capture the city of Quebec, the heart of British Canada, the former heart of New France. He wants to attack the city. He wants to force them onto the American side and strengthen the American Continental Congress by one more colony, the colony of Quebec itself, all of Canada. Now, the mission of Benedict Arnold, and he does get approval for this, is really in many ways an unfortunate comedy of errors. Uh, he elects to attack... Quebec City itself in two ways. One force of men uh, will travel up the uh, Hudson River into Lake George, into Lake Champlain, into the Richelieu, and into the St. Lawrence. And he will take his men through the wilds of Maine uh, and attack uh, Quebec City from the north. Now, if you've ever been to Maine, if you're listening in Maine, you know it's a beautiful place. Uh, but it is a wild, untamed place. It's an unforgiving place. And the fact that Benedict Arnold kind of wants to go through the worst of it to get to where he wants to be gives you an idea of exactly the problem he runs into in 1775. But the long and short of this campaign, because again, we do have to be selective, uh, is that Benedict Arnold in 1775 will arrive at the gates of Quebec, assault the city in December of that year, and fail miserably. Uh, not only are his men killed, uh, Quebec is a massive fortified city along the St. Lawrence River. If you've never been there, I'd encourage you to go. It's that little bit of Europe, I think, in North America that remains as a direct conduit uh, to the 18th century. But not only are his men killed in this disastrous assault, they're terribly uh, tired and worn from actually marching there on a forced march through the cold wilderness of Maine in winter, but Arnold himself is wounded. Uh, he falls back to the outside of the gate, embarrassed. The British actually get a victory here uh, in a battle which they didn't even realize was coming. In a lot of ways, because, again, Arnold does put his ego above common sense in terms of military strategy. And Arnold will fall back and attempt to besiege the position into 1776. The Battle of Quebec is a very confusing battle. It's one that shouldn't have happened in the year that it did, in the time that it did. Arnold believes so much. Uh, in himself, and really, I think, overestimated the element of surprise that he rushed his men into a full onslaught of a city that is literally itself a fort, uh, and paid dearly for it. What we have in 1775 is a revolution without an identity. It's an army, in many ways, without a soul, without a leader. It's a war without a strategy. Many different peoples want to claim to be, to be in charge. Many people want to wear the mantle of leadership. But right now, they're a disorganized lot. They're fighting many different wars, I think, for many different reasons. Uh, and as the war continues, a more cohesive identity will develop. In fact, it has to, or the whole thing will be a miserable failure. On the next episode, we'll talk about the year 1776. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.